Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Absalom. You know that that's actually not how you pronounce it in the Hebrew? I'm not exactly sure how we come up with our uh, transliterations, how we pronounce things when they don't even really sound similar. It's not that it doesn't sound similar, but it's Abishalom which you'll recognize if you've gone through Ellerslie or spent time in this church, the word ab means father, and so you'll be quick to recognize that. And then shalom is the classic word for peace. And so ab shalom, but it's pronounced abi shalom. Ab meaning father, shalom, peace. But let's break down shalom a little because the concept of peace is fairly uh, simplistic to most of us in our mindsets. It just means, you know, there's no war. Well, In the Hebrew, the word shalom means completeness or soundness or safety or welfare, health, prosperity. More simply, it's all is right or all as it should be. So when you say shalom, brother, you're basically saying, oh, that it would be as it should be in your life, that all would be sound, all would be complete. And yes, that means that you're not at war. So that can be part of what it means. But that's a deeper understanding of what shalom means is. So obviously, if, a, if the name of the message is Absalom, we're obviously going to dig into this man's story. So it's interesting how in the Hebrew, when a man is named, his name actually has and bears significance to what he demonstrates. This man, his name basically means father and peace, or my father is peace, or the father of peace. Okay, in other words, the Genesis point, or the one who will bring peace, completeness, soundness, the one who will make all things right. There's a very interesting name to give to this man. Wait and see. Absalom. And sorry, I'm not giving the Hebrew pronunciation for it, but this is what I grew up saying as Absalom, so that's the way I'll say it to you guys. Basically, this is what his name would mean. Hey, guys, forget David. Now, if those of you that don't know David, it's King David. You know, the shepherd boy, slew Goliath. Forget David. I'm the one who can make all all that is wrong right in Israel. So he's, first of all, proposing something's wrong in Israel. And he's saying, forget your current king. I'm the father of peace. I'm the one who can make all things right. Now, if you know the story of Absalom, you know that he is not necessarily a good character. He dies a very dismal death, and he is not remembered kindly in the annals of the Hebrew culture. And so what we're dealing with is a man's name that is a counterfeit of one who truly is a father of peace. And so what we see in the Hebrew language is this happens quite a bit, where this is what he presents himself as, when in actuality he's anything but that. And the reason I bring up this is to show you that Lucifer, by the way, it's Satan, Beelzebub, the devil, 
Lucifer, his name in the Hebrew, I have no idea how they came up with the name Lucifer because Hillel is actually what the Hebrew is. That's actually how you'd even pronounce it. So I'm not exactly sure how you get Hillel and then Lucifer. But his name means bringer of light, which to the Hebrew means knowledge and understanding. Remember that serpent hanging from the tree in the garden saying, look at this fruit. Hey, there's something God didn't tell you. Don't trust God. Trust me. I have light for you. I have understanding and knowledge that he's not giving you. And so if you put me in charge of your life, you'll see that you can rule your own existence, which is what is known as sin. Usurping the territory or the throne of God and claiming for yourself that which rightfully belongs to God. You know that your body is not your own? You know that this is a house that was built for God by God? But Lucifer comes in as a bearer of light. And what does he say? He says, I have light for you. See, you know that God of yours that you, know, you think is all kind and he's interested in doing you good? He's up to no good. He's not giving you all the information. If you eat of that fruit, you'll find things out that he's not telling you. See, he doesn't want you to eat that fruit because when you do, your eyes will be open and you will see that you can be as a God just as he is. He's a bringer of light. Is he a bringer of true light? No. Any more than Absalom is a father of real peace. He's a father of false peace. So Lucifer. Now, if I'm going to give a a nice definition for Lucifer, it would be this. Forget Jesus, for I have knowledge that he is purposely withholding from you. Knowledge that will make all things right for you. In other words, he's going to bring peace. Lucifer has it. Lucifer has the answer for your soul. Just eat the fruit. Okay, now, most of you in here well, would probably quickly attest to the fact that you were not in the Garden of Eden. So you were not there to witness what actually happened. However, that same voice hangs from a tree in your life daily. And what it does is it calls into question the nature and the character of the true king. There is a voice, and we'll call it the Absalom voice. And what it is constantly doing is eroding confidence in true authority and in God-defined leadership. It has an agenda. What is its agenda? That it would become the authority. You see, it's not just playing neutral, saying, you know, look, I care about you, and I'm really concerned because I see some problems in the leadership. The solution is itself. Lucifer is not just saying, oh, you could be in charge of your own life. No, he knows that if you eat of that fruit, he is the one that you're believing. He's the one you're submitting to. He's the one that you're trusting. You are actually submitting to Lucifer instead of your rightful king. Absalom knows the same game. Why? Because it's Lucifer's game. Lucifer and Absalom are of the same material. And you'll see this principle all throughout Scripture. Now, where this message is going is we are internalizing it into this room. In other words, it's not just we're talking about a story way back in ancient Israel. We're talking about a story here in the present tense. And that is that there is an Absalom that wants to stand at the gate in each of our souls and subvert the notion that King Jesus is trustworthy and that you can give your life to him and trust him with every ounce of your being. There is also, when the enemy plays with churches and he attempts to destroy church bodies, he works with the Absalom voice to undermine confidence in leadership so that leadership would be established in another way. 
And so let's walk through this. It's a very fascinating study. If you guys remember the message, uh, what was it called? The Most Unlikely Heroes. I went through a book by Mark Bauerlein. It was a very quick overview. And it's basically called The Dumbest Generation, which is basically saying anyone between like 18 and 24 are classified through research as the dumbest generation ever, which is funny. I was bringing that up to all my Ellerslie students, and of course, most of them are in that age range. They're like, what? And I said, I want you to get mad with that. And the reason I'm even bringing it up is so that you would to rise up and say, no way am I going to be the dumbest generation ever. However, research has shown, and it's an extremely fascinating message. I'm not going to give it now, but you need to listen to that message. It's called The Most Unlikely Heroes. My end point is the most unlikely generation to truly change the world is this one. Because they are literally the most incompetent, unprepared. 75% of the 18 to 24-year-old age range is ill-equipped to enter into the military. 75% are not even fit for military service. We are complete slobs of our souls and bodies. We have no ability, no, uh, no strength within to handle our own lives, let alone someone else's. So we're saying the dumbest generation, and in this list, I had a list of six different things that this generation is noted for. And this list is rather fascinating. I'm not going to go through it, but I'm going to give you number five of that list. This generation is famous for their betrayal of mentors. This is just a fascinating thing. And here's what's interesting. I understand this intimately. When I saw that on the list, it was just, just an immediate light bulb goes off. It's like, that is really interesting. You see, they'll take all they want from you, and then they'll scrap you as a leader. How many parents have actually witnessed this with older kids? In other words, where it's sort of like they drain the parents for all they have, and then it's just like, hey, I have no loyalty here. We have an entire crisis in our generation of a betrayal of mentorship. You could call it a betrayal of parents. You could call it a betrayal of churches and church leadership. It is a very common thing. They find a reason to complain, and that one little discrepancy or indiscretion, which if you search hard, you're probably going to find fault with every single person on planet Earth. You find the fault, and that is reason enough to throw it out. So they're the most apt to disbelieve, disregard, or betray teachers and mentors of any generation. That's not my terminology. That's a study on this generation. It's a really fascinating study because it's exactly what I have witnessed as well. So introducing Absalom, I'm going to give him a name, Mr. False Peace. You see, it's not true peace that he's presenting. It's a false peace. And when this voice stands at the gate of our own soul, it is baiting us towards a way of making our life right that actually doesn't make our life right. It only makes our life more wrong. However, if you buy the truth or the false light that comes from the Lucifer voice or the Absalom voice, what you find is in the moment it sounds very credible. But if you do not align it with Scripture and test it, you will realize that you are actually going an errant way. You are headed over a cliff. It's like a carrot dangling over a cliff saying, hey, this way, this is healthy. That's where the carrot is. And because you're so hungry, there you are, leaping off a cliff unwittingly. So introducing Absalom, Mr. False Peace. A story of feigned righteousness. The word feigned, probably a little too big of a word for a Sunday sermon. Uh, false, acted, it's not true. That's what feigned would be. It's a character act. 
a story of feigned righteousness. In other words, Absalom's entire presentation was, hey, I'm in the right. Hey, I've done everything legally correct here. Hey, I've only done that which they were not willing to deal with. I've done it correct. How come I'm not being appreciated around here? Feigned righteousness. Righteousness meaning as a man ought to be. Hey, I'm correct. They're the ones that are wrong. So a story of feigned righteousness. So chapter 1. He's born into the royal family. Absalom is the son of King David. So we're not talking about just some renegade character in Israel in this story. We're actually talking about the son of King David. Of course, he had quite a few sons. He had quite a few wives. That's a different discussion. But Absalom is born into royalty. He is not an insignificant character. He is actually a very powerful character in Israel. Chapter 2, the tragedy. As the story goes, the way we are introduced into Absalom is through a tragedy. You see, Absalom has a sister, and her name is Tamar. Tamar is extremely beautiful, as is Absalom. As strange as the descriptions are of him, I will read you the descriptions of Absalom. Uh, They are a little uncomfortable uh, for us men to hear how beautiful this man is, but he was beautiful. (laughs) So is Tamar, his sister. Well, from a different wife of David's, There is another son, and he is the oldest of David's sons. So he literally is in line in an ancestral sense to be the next king of Israel. And his name is Amnon. And Amnon is not a healthy character. He was not really raised properly, obviously. And he has some issues. He is very interested in Tamar to the point where he takes advantage of Tamar and violates her. I'm just going to leave it at that. Well, King David is very upset about this, but King David doesn't ever follow through with proper justice. So, we could say King David didn't handle it perfectly. And who notices that? But the brother of Tamar, who is Absalom. Chapter 3, the Stoic Rus. Again, probably too big of words here. Uh, Stoic, meaning non-emotional. Okay, I don't feel anything. I'm fine. Rus meaning a play act. It's not, it's not true. So what he does for the next years of his life, I think it was three years, is he acts like it's no big deal that Tamar was violated, that his sister was taken advantage of. But the entire while, he's conspiring. You see, there is an injustice that was done in Israel. And no one is dealing with it properly. So who steps up to deal with it? Mr. False Peace. Chapter 4, the murder. I could call it the murder of Amnon. You see, Absalom has been conspiring. David has not an inkling that his son has anger issues. Not an inkling that his son is vengeful. Not an inkling about any of this. And Absalom invites all of David's sons to some sort of a feast, a banquet. David actually says no to it. Absalom pleads and says, especially Amnon, which to David is probably thinking, you know, it's really good that he wants Amnon there. It's really good that he's actually walked through a forgiveness process with him. And so David falls for it. And Amnon and all the rest of the sons gather for a banquet, and Absalom and all his men have already conspired. The moment, Ab- the moment Amnon gets drunk with wine, slay him in cold blood. The murder. Chapter 5, the exile. Well, Amnon is killed. It is quite a 
dastardly deed in Israel. And Absalom is exiled or flees for his life because what he has done is unjust. He has actually killed the king's oldest son, not a safe thing to do in any country. And so he flees to Geshur where he's in hiding. Now, David never pursues him. David never seeks punishment. David loves Absalom. David, of course, Absalom's his son. David does nothing once again. And after three years has passed, certain events unfold that cause David to reinvite Absalom back. Now, a very key principle in church processing and in church discipline. If there is non-repentance or unrepentance over a deed, do not bring that person back into your midst. It is a very, very dangerous thing to deal with unrepentance. So the exile, but look what's next, the return of the unrepentant. David invites him back to Jerusalem. Now, this is a man, Absalom, with issues. Yes, he's beautiful on the outside, but he stores a lot of pent-up emotion on the inside, which has already been proven true. Absalom is upset. Why? Because he's been invited back to Jerusalem, but King David has not even talked with him yet. Hey, if you want me back in Jerusalem, explain to me why. Come talk to my face. But David doesn't acknowledge him. Joab, the one that invited him, David's key commander of the armed forces, David's right hand, actually is not responding to any of Absalom's calls. You know, sort of his text messages are coming in and the emails are, and the uh, voicemails are just filling up his phone. And Joab is ignoring him. So what does Absalom do? Well, a nearby field belongs to Joab where barley is grown. So he has his servants go out and burn the field. Well, that got Joab's attention. When Joab calls up and he says, hey, buddy, you just burnt down my field. What do you think you're doing? He says, you never returned my calls. That's his response. You never returned my calls. He never even mentions anything about what he did to the fields. He just says, you didn't return my calls. And so he says, I want to talk to the king. And so he gets an audience with the king. The burning of the neighbor's fields, chapter 7. Chapter 8, the false bow. He comes into David's presence and they kiss and he bows before him. He is showing a false reverence and respect. He actually does not have a reverence and a respect for his dad. His dad did not prove a just man to him. And so as a result, he still carries a burden. He is cherishing a resentment and an unforgiveness in his soul. And as a result, you're going to see what comes of it. Chapter 9, the gate. Absalom has a conspiracy that he is hatching. And if you don't recognize this conspiracy, it will destroy a nation. If you don't recognize this conspiracy in your soul, it will destroy your Christian life. If we don't understand this conspiracy within the church of Jesus Christ, it will destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Why do you think we have the Bible? So we understand how the enemy works and we understand and have wisdom in knowing how to address things. So Absalom comes to the gate. In the olden days, the gate was the place of decision-making and authority. Those that had influence were at the gate. The counselors were at the gate. So the men of importance were at the gate. And so most of the decisions that were significant in a society would be decided at a gate. Absalom daily would rise early in the morning and come to the gate. And he would come to the gate 
and he would intercept everyone that was on their way to King David to seek judgment on a matter or a decision on a matter. And so he would intercept them, and he had a very cunning way of dealing with them. He would listen to what they had to say, and no matter what they said, this is very interesting, note this, no matter what they said, he said they were 100% right. You have a good case. I agree with you. I believe you. And then he said, it's too bad that there's no one that the king has who can listen to such cases. Boy, if I was put in charge of this nation, I could help someone like you. You know what it says? It says that this way, Absalom stole the heart of Israel. One man at a time, he stole the heart of an entire nation. It works, by the way. The enemy knows it. You know, you go back and you say, how in the world did Lucifer take one-third of the angelic host? How idiotic were these angels? Well, how idiotic was Israel to listen to Absalom? How idiotic are we to listen to the Absalom at our gate? We all fall for it. Absalom is one smooth talker. Chapter 10, the devilish wooing, which I just explained to you. The wooing of the hearts of Israel. Chapter 11, the spiritual vow. This is very interesting. Under the banner of a spiritual vow, he comes to King David and he says, Look, when I was in Gesher, I made a vow unto God that said I would return to Hebron if you ever invited me back to Jerusalem. So since you invited me back, I feel that now that I'm 40 years old, I need to go and pay my vow in Hebron. By the way, Hebron is where David was crowned king. So this is not an insignificant place in Israel's history. Absalom is conspiring to head to Hebron, which is the high place in Israel, to be crowned king. Chapter 12, the sting. When there's a con job, the sting is the final moment when everyone begins to realize what was taking place beneath the surface. The trumpet blast sounds and everyone in Israel cries out, Absalom is king. Suddenly, David is running for his life. Now, I'm not going to go into the rest of the story. It's, it is fascinating. 2 Samuel chapter 13 through chapter 18 is a worthy read, believe me. It is a great story. It is extremely fascinating. The end of Absalom, because of his beauty, one of the things that he's noted for in his beautiful uh, look is his hair. It is really strange, but he has this hair that just grows yearly. It grows in such a way where it just is this massive heap. And of course, it's beautiful and flowing too. But he actually, when he's running through the woods in the midst of battle, his hair gets caught in a tree and he hangs in a tree and Joab comes up and stabs him. His, his beauty actually was his demise. It's, it's a really fascinating story. But eventually Absalom goes down, which is the great way the Bible works. Bad guy always loses. That's what I love about the Bible. In the end, the good guy always wins. So let's look a little deeper into this. The grievance. You know that if you don't have a grievance, then you don't have anything to build your false peace and your message and all that you're doing on. What Absalom within us and within a church is looking for is a grievance. You could call it a charge. The Pharisees were constantly watching Jesus. What were they looking for? Were they looking for miracles? Were they looking for truth? No. They hated this man. They didn't want this man alive. But they couldn't just kill him without what? 
without a charge, without a grievance, without an accusation. They were looking for something to accuse him of. It says that over and over in Scripture. The Pharisees were looking for an accusation. So he heals on the Sabbath. What do they do? Aha! Uh-huh. Uh, we have our reason. Every time he did anything that violated any of their code, they had their accusation against him, and they nurtured it, and they festered that. And guess what? They killed him. This is what the Absalom, the Lucifer, the Pharisee does. So the grievance, the justification for Mr. False Peace, there needs to be a grievance. It doesn't matter how small. It just needs a grievance. That's the basis. That's what it grows out of. Grievance number one, the violation of Tamar. Ah. But not just that, the non-action of David. You see, it's one thing. He's mad at Amnon, but guess what? He nurtures a long-held grievance against his father. Otherwise, he would have never done this to his father. The non-action of David. This guy violated my sister. You are not doing anything about it. And guess what? He's right. He's right. There is an actual grievance. There is an inequity. There is an injustice that has taken place. It is not right what Amnon did. It is not right how David handled it. He is correct. But how he responds to the injustice and the grievance is what proves what he's made of. By the way, we as Christians will have all sorts of injustices. We'll have all sorts of reasons to have grievance. We'll have all sorts of reasons to not offer forgiveness and to resent and to be bitter. Believe me, just live for one day on planet Earth. They're all over the place. Grievance number three, the non-communication of Joab. How dare you not respond to my calls? Was it right that Joab showed such a disregard for Absalom? No. I would say that that was dishonoring, and Joab probably didn't handle that the best way. However, burning his fields, is that the right way of responding to the grievance? Grievance number four, the insensitivities of David. You see, David didn't reach out to him the whole time. David loved his son. There's no doubt about it. David, I love David. Some of the ways in which he raised his kids are a little suspect, and I'm not exactly sure how to respond to them. For instance, in this situation, it's just like, David, could we work this through in a healthier way? However, if we were in David's shoes, we might understand how challenging it would have been too. So I'm not going to come from thousands of years later and try and make my assessment. I'm just going to say, okay, I can understand that maybe Absalom had a just cause. Maybe he did have a rightful grievance. However, how he responded to that grievance defines a lot. The Absalom response, devilish behavior packaged inside a man of supposed justice. What Absalom was about was peace and justice. And yet, packaged inside this is a devilish behavior. What he's doing is anything but the nature of God. Grievance number one, the violation of Tamar. Grievance number two, the non-action of David. Listen to his response, the devilish behavior of Absalom. He brings about a vigilante justice killing Amnon in cold blood. By the way, that is not the proper way of handling a grievance, is to murder. Grievance number three, the non-communication of Joab, the devilish behavior burning down his barley field. Grievance number four, the insensitivities of David. Well, the devilish behavior of Absalom, wooing the hearts of Israel through deception and flattering, turning them against David, stealing his father's throne and defiling his father's house. And I'm not going to go into all the details of what Absalom did, but trust me. He did it openly in front of all of Israel. 
and defrauded and defiled David's wives. I mean, it is sickening and disgusting. And that is anything but the nature of God. That is not how God responds. And yet that's how Absalom responded. The fruit check. What does it say in Scripture? In Matthew 7, Jesus speaks. He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. What does that mean? Sheep's clothing. You see, we are called sheep in Scripture. We have a shepherd and we're sheep. And the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. And so if you wanted to enter into the sheepfold, what would you have to act like? A sheep. So you get dressed up into sheep's clothing. But how do you know if it's a costume or it's the real thing? Well, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their behavior because, yes, a wolf can dress up in sheep's clothing, but guess what? They can't act like a sheep. And so as a result, you'll notice their gait and their walk, and they'll growl, and they'll eat meat, and they'll, they'll drool a lot. It's like, something's wrong with you. We can call it the fruit check. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. That's a strange statement because it's talking about false prophets in sheep's clothing. You don't think of fruit in that. For most of us, we would say you would know them by their behavior. However, Jesus is using the term fruit. In other words, that which is born out of the life. In Galatians 5, it makes it very clear what the fruit of the believer is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we know, according to Scripture, what fruit a sheep bears. So as a result, he says, beware, for there will be false prophets among you, those that bear the name of God, but are anything but servants of God. How will you recognize them? By fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? In other words, when you come out to a grapevine, are you, are you trying to, or you come out to a thistle bush, are you looking for a grape? No, because thistles don't grow grapes. Same with wolves. They don't produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. So if it's a good tree, what is it going to bear? It must bear good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. How do you recognize a a corrupt tree? It brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. What an interesting statement. Boy, that one causes us to shudder a little, doesn't it? A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Gulp. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Who's talking? Jesus. Who's the authority on this matter? Jesus, really don't care what your opinion is. I care about that one. Jesus himself is saying, beware. Now, we can look at this at two levels. The church, the global church body, but also our souls. How will you know if an idea or a thought or a presentation is from God? How will you know? Well, test it. Well, you could say, how am I supposed to know? It's just, you know, it's an interesting idea or a notion or a concept. How can I know it? You have the word of God to test it with. Our generation knows so little about the Word of God. The church today has more access to the Word of God than it's ever had. And yet it knows it far less than it's ever known it. And as a result, guess what? Absalom can stand at our gate and dupe the masses right now. This voice is carrying away the church because we can't test it. 
It's Mr. False Peace. The next line, okay, I know, see, that, that finishes Matthew 7.20. This is Matthew 7.21. You could say, why in the world are you breaking it up? Just to focus on it, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. How do you know a true sheep? How do you know? Because they do the will of the Father in heaven. How do you know the will? It's the word of God. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That which God prescribes. If God is making it very clear, do not murder, then guess what? That isn't the will of God, and that isn't the fruit of righteousness. If God is making it very clear, when you are offended, don't go out and burn someone's field, then guess what? When you do, you are evidencing that your nature is not of heaven. And if you are usurping your father's throne and turning the hearts of an entire people against your rightful commander, who is assigned and chosen by God himself, and then violate and defile his very wives and concubines in front of a nation, if that isn't prescribed in Scripture, you are demonstrating that you are not of heaven's department. Something is wrong with this man of peace and justice. Though his name may sound good, and though he be a very beautiful man, you have been duped, Israel. And if we are being conned in our own souls to doubt the Scriptures, to doubt our rightful king, in turn for modern philosophies and notions of religion, even amongst the church, by the way, which I could tag as the emergent church movement in one fail swoop, then we are listening to the wrong voice, not the biblical voice, but the voice that sounds good and beautiful and has hair flowing down like a mass upon their head. Improper evaluation of a man. Why in the world do we get duped today so quickly? I have a proposal, and this is a biblical statement, but I have a proposal that we improperly evaluate a man's credibility. And we all fall for this, okay? And the prophet Samuel fell for it. The nation of Israel fell for it. We fall for it. We look at the outside credibility and qualifications. We look at how they look, how they carry themselves, how they dress. How many businessmen have you heard say, just look at their shoes, and you can know the quality of a man? Just take them to the golf course. See how good. If they, if they work hard and are diligent there and they can handle it when their, their ball goes into the lake, eh, you could work with them. That's actually not what God says as far as his evaluation of a man. Improper evaluation of a man, our strange propensity to applaud the wrong sort of man. And as a result, when you're impressed with the wrong sort of man, do you know what happens? You allow him credibility and leadership strength in an environment, but it's not God's test. And so as a result, Absaloms are able to come to the gate and you go, but he looks so nice. He's eye candy for all the women in Israel. That's a little awkward for us guys. Just wait till I give you the description of him. Okay, I haven't done that yet. Okay, let's go back in time. We have David, King David. Before King David became king, do you know that Israel had another king? And his name was Saul. Saul, where was Saul chosen from? Amongst Israel. Listen to this description. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul. Listen to this description. A choice young man and a goodly, meaning he was everything a man ought to be. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier, isn't that a weird word, goodlier person than he. 
From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. He's a giant in Israel. He is the ultimate man. And guess what? He nearly destroyed the entire nation of Israel. You measure a man by the outside and you get a Saul. You see, God rejected Saul. Saul was not after his heart. Saul was not interested in the benefit of Israel. He was interested in his own exaltation. He proved it a thousand times over. His arch enemy was God's chosen, which is King David. Okay, you'll notice a a parallel here. You see, God chooses David. The nation of Israel chooses Saul. Hey, hey, we want this guy. This guy's our guy. He was an improper evaluation of a man. And it came to pass. Now, this is very interesting. Saul has been rejected. Samuel is then assigned to go to the sons of Jesse to pick for Israel their next king. And so this is what happens next. And it came to pass when they were come. So all of of Jesse's sons are standing there, except for one. One was strangely missing, the eighth. Seven Seven of Jesse's sons are standing before Samuel, the prophet. And up strolls Eliab, or Eliab. And he's goodly. So listen. So he looked on Eliab, Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, which is his face, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You notice who's in each of these stories? David. You see, Saul was chosen over David. Eliab, or Eliab, would have been chosen over David. Both of them were preferable over David. Yet who does God choose? He chooses David. And in this context, says he's a man after God's own heart. Now this is extra interesting because this is the description of Absalom, who is David's son. Again, all of the competition for the throne of Israel in the life of David, and they all say the same thing. All his competition is beautiful, is goodly. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I don't know if I put it in here or not. I have this now this panic that I didn't put in the, the little scripture about his hair. Uh, which had to be cut yearly, once a year. And it totaled, I don't know, it was like five pounds, his hair. Once a year. Could you imagine if your hair grew that fast? Pastoral bling. Bling is sort of like, cachet value. (laughs) It It has that which captivates and energizes an audience. Pastoral bling in and amongst the modern church system. You know that we have an entire way that we evaluate. We have pastor search committees in most churches. You know that's the most horrible method of choosing a pastor I can even think of is a pastoral search committee. Because why? You have no time to evaluate the man. How do you evaluate a man? By looking at his resume? By living with him. By watching him in difficult situations. How does he respond to crisis? Measure a man through living life lived, not through a resume. This is the church of Jesus Christ, not a business enterprise. Souls are at stake. So pastoral bling holds sway over the modern church. Does he have school smarts? Look at his GPA. 
How well did he do in school? Because if he's not smart in school, by golly, we're not going to have him as a pastor of our church. And by the way, I'm not saying if he does bad in school, he's a good pastor. Okay, it's not the opposite of these things that's true. It's just saying this is not God's measuring stick. It never has been. Stunning creativity. If the guy has that ability to tell a story or to do things in the church that just sort of cause everyone to go, oh, that is brilliant. Creativity is truly what every church wants because it's entertaining. Knowledge of the Bible, quick access to relatable scripture references, which, by the way, I'm a big fan of. I'm not against these things as if I'm opposed to creativity. I'm just saying these aren't the measuring sticks of a man you would ever want to put in charge of a church or elders that you would want to follow. This is not God's measuring stick. It never has been and never will be. And I know knowledge of the Bible is critical. I'm not saying that absence of knowledge is what you look for. Idiocy, like, you're my guy. Number four, business and leadership acumen. Number five, silver-tongued eloquence. They can talk. They are easy to listen to. I like the soothing sounds of their voice. I don't know if anyone's ever said they like the soothing sound of my yelling. <laughs> so let's look at God's evaluation of a man. This is a really interesting contrast. Humility. He does not think highly of himself or his own ability. God's like, I like it. All right, next. Faith. He thinks highly of God and of God's ability. Obedience, whatever God asks, he does, without question and without complaint. You know, if we're measuring anyone in here as a Christian for leadership, what are we looking at? You're seeing the list right here. Humility, faith, obedience. Not obedience to just leadership, obedience to the word of God. Love, and when he does it, he does it with love just as God would do it. In other words, he handles every situation with loving dexterity. Everything that comes out of him is Jesus at every turn. That's, that's who we want to lead. That's a great father. That's a great pastor. That's a great husband. That's a great civic leader. That's what we want. The Absalom twist. In order to make a wrong right, another wrong is justified. You ever heard the statement, two wrongs do not make a right? It's a classic statement when dealing with abortion. You know that the pro-lifers will say, well, by the way, it's true. To abort a baby doesn't correct the problem that was created in maybe the uh, incestual relationship or the rape. doesn't solve the problem to abort the baby. That baby is a life. And so it's very interesting, but the Absalom twist is very reminiscent of modern thinking, which is we have a problem here. How do we respond to it? We respond to it with another wrong. That other wrong is justified because it's dealing with a previous wrong. I got hit in the nose. Well, now I'm justified to hit back in the nose. Did that actually make anything right? No, I just made the problem worse. Because now a fist is coming right back at my nose again. You see, all we're doing is spiraling out of control. Jesus comes in and actually brings the cross. He redeems. He reconciles. He stops the bloodshed. The downward spiral to hell. He changes the pattern. He struck on one cheek and he turns to them the other also. It doesn't even make sense. But Absalom is not of that pattern. Absalom is of the fleshly pattern which every single one of us knows intimately. If you're wronged, you have every right to wrong in response. If someone harms you, you can, by golly, hold a grievance against them and you can hold resentment and bitterness against them. 
You don't have to forgive. If you knew what that person did to me, you'd understand why I'm stewing about it. You'd understand why I'm conspiring to undermine them and destroy them. Would I? Are you sure of that? See, I take my commands from the Word of God, and in the Word of God it says something quite different. If you're wronged, you forgive. Otherwise, God's not forgiven you. Hmm. The heavenly principle. Godly solutions are not brought about by ungodly actions. God does not, when there's a wrong, he does not respond in a like wrong. Godly solutions do not come with ungodly behavior. One of the statements I remember someone saying to me is, if you're late, of course, we all want to be on time. You know, being prompt is, is an attribute of respect and shows honor. However, say you're late. Is it appropriate to run someone over on the street? Is it appropriate to go, hey, buddy, get out of the way? Because, hey, I need to be prompt, and that's how I show Jesus. You show Jesus even in how you handle the fact that you're late. How you handle that challenge is defining Jesus, because, yes, we will all run behind at times. These things happen. But how do we respond to it? Does another wrong make the whole thing right? You killed 10 people getting here on time. I'd rather have you late. Matthew 7. This is just a a review. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. How do you know they're wolves? You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. The time is coming, it says in John 16, that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. You see, when you follow Absalom, you honestly believe you're in the right. You're convinced of it. You actually think you're offering God service, but you're violating everything else in Scripture. You see, you may feel justified because there was an injustice done, and you are making just that which is unjust. You are correcting a wrong. However, what you're doing is anything but Christ-like. And so as a result, you are not on the side of truth. You are actually in danger of a far worse fate than even that person that violated you. A short list of Absalomian justifications. Gossip or slander. Now, this is an evaluation for each of our souls. I have been around this many times over, and I'm guessing you have too. The older you get, the more familiar with these things you get. How many times in church or in a prayer meeting have you heard gossip or slander under the banner of loving someone? Oh, and I just, you know, I hate to say this, but I I love them so much, I just really feel it'd be helpful for you guys to know so that we can pray about it. How many times in prayer have secrets been divulged? That wrong that you are perpetrating is not making anything right. It's actually creating a greater wrong. You are not participating in stride with the Spirit of God in what you're doing. To dishonor and disrespect someone and to not appropriate that situation properly, if you know something about someone, there's a proper way of handling it. God addresses that in Scripture. How we handle is of the utmost importance. Don't burn down a field or kill Amnon. 
That isn't how you respond when you hear of an indiscretion. Feeling justified because you see something. Fleshly anger and rage because you uncovered unrighteousness. You see something that's not right. Does that give you any authorization to respond in the flesh and to be enraged? I I don't think so. In fact, I know so. It doesn't. You do not have any license to not behave as Jesus because you see unrighteousness. Doesn't even make sense. Backing out of a commitment in a dishonorable way. You make a commitment, but guess what? Something along the way doesn't seem right. And you're not feeling comfortable here anymore. And so what do you do? You just leave? Well, because you feel led to do something different, you know there's a proper way of dealing with your commitments? And it's not to just say, yeah, I'm out of here. You appeal. And you say, look, I'm just feeling really uncomfortable with some things here, and I was just wondering if you would give me leave. You can make an appeal, but you show respect. There's a proper way of dealing as a Christian. If you're wronged or you see something that's wrong, you do not retaliate as the enemy would retaliate. It's not eye for eye. It's not slap them in the cheek because you got slapped. We respond as Christians, not as the world. Spreading discord because it's deserving. What this person did is is not right. And so what do you do with that information? Do you spread it? Because it'll spread like wildfire. And it will destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Self-pity. Because you were wronged. And it's only right to nurse your wounds. Self-pity will kill you and it will kill those around you. It's a really interesting and insipid disease. It sounds totally harmless. It's like it's just a little self-pity. It's self That's what's wrong with it. It turns you inward and causes you to look at everything around you as the problem and you as the victim. Anytime you find yourself in the victim mentality, you've lost sight of the cross of Jesus Christ. You are the rescued, not the victim. Revenge, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment because justice must be served. You know that there are people in this world right now that have violated probably many people in this room and they went scot-free. No one did anything. Justice was not served in that situation. There was no penalty. There was no fine. There was no prison sentence. By golly, they will serve time in your soul. And so you think that by having them serve in your soul through bitterness and resentment, you are making a wrong right? You are making a wrong even wronger. And you're destroying your soul and those around you as you do it. This is not how Christians behave. Banding with others of same spirit with grievances. When you have a grievance, be very watchful. First of all, deal with your own grievance, but watch out. When you are carrying a grievance, there is a magnetic pull. You begin to look for other people. I remember I did this. I had a grievance with a product I received from Target. It was very poorly put together. The pieces did not even fit. Uh, And I was quite upset with this piece, and I had a grievance. I went online to see if anyone else had the same grievance. And I found some reviews that made me laugh out loud. (laughs) And I got a certain, certain thrill by knowing that other people were carrying the same grievance with me. Be very watchful of that. Because what happens is there will be a band that can come together. And when a band comes together in the church... What was once maybe a small thing, when you hear it in the sound of a chorus, suddenly becomes a huge thing. It's called a church split. 
Something very small can become very large in a matter of seconds that way. Because it can make that which is wrong suddenly seem right? It does. You see, even though you're banding together and you are resenting and you are unforgiving, when you're around a whole bunch of other Christians that are doing the same, suddenly it feels right to do it. It justifies it. Do not participate in that. Do not be party to it in your own soul. Responding is Jesus. We forgive, we forgive, we forgive. We turn the other cheek. We walk the extra mile. We rejoice. We leap with joy when we are falsely accused, when we are harmed, when we are harassed, when we are hurt. Who does that? A Christian. See, Absalom does the opposite. That's what you're maybe used to. This is how a Christian responds. This is how Jesus responds. Who lives in you? Well, it's supposed to be Jesus Christ. In other words, the behavior and the attitude and the actions that flow out of you are supposed to be heaven's behavior, be heaven, heaven's actions, heaven's attitude. We respond with gentleness. If you want a good message, if this message is striking home with you, there's a message from, oh, I don't know, a couple months ago called The Agony of Gentleness. It's how to handle revilement when you're reviled. I tell you what, there's no more painful thing, but to respond as Jesus is where life comes in. To leap for joy. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. When you're in a moment where literally it feels like all hell has been unleashed against you, to literally agree with Scripture in your soul and to get airborne. It's an amazingly therapeutic thing because what it does is it opens up the channel of joy in your soul and you really do have joy because the way that joy enters in is through obedience to Scripture. And you say, God, here's what you say my action is going to be and I agree with you. I have faith. And so you leap, and guess what? You become an instrument of joy in that situation. And suddenly you have clearer perspective, and you don't have hard feelings. You're forgiving towards that person. You can actually begin to pray for them and love them right from the onset of a situation, even the worst of situations. Two key applications. Be watchful of an Absalom in your own soul, and be watchful of an Absalom in the church. There's a reason why God has given us the Absalom story. There's a reason why we have the story of Lucifer. There's a reason why we have the story of Saul. It's to train us how to protect Israel, how to protect that which God is building, his kingdom. We have a trust here. You see, we're not the entire body of Christ. We're a piece. We're a member of the body. However, we have a real life here, but it's a delicate life, and it must be stewarded. It must be shepherded very graciously and gently and mercifully, but watchfully. So what I'm going to do, even though I put these in this order, I'm actually going to start with the second because I want to finish with the personal. I want to deal with the church body, and then I want to get to the personal because that's really where the application is in this message at a greater level. Recognizing the Absalom technique. So this is in the church. 2 Samuel 15. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment... Then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. 
And it was so that when any man came near to him to do him obeisance, because he was the son of a king, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. Listen to this line. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So, six obvious giveaways that there is an Absalom in the room. The talk is big, but the life lived is small. Anyone can talk. Only the sheep can live. If you are not a good tree, you cannot produce good fruit. So be watchful of big talk. You watch the life. Look at the fruit that is born out of that life, and that's how you measure, and that's how we maintain safety in the body of Christ. There is an agreement with God in terminology, but not in behavior. The language is justice and mercy and doing that which is right, and the health of Israel is all that matters. But his life proves that these really aren't his primary motives. What is Absalom's primary motive? Health in Israel? No, if it was health in Israel, he wouldn't behaving, be behaving the way he is. What's his motive? His motive is the kingdom. He wants the throne of David. He wants vengeance. Two, the over-politeness is pungent. Did you see how Absalom did what he did? Oh, you're so right. Everything you say is true. I believe it. Oh, if I could only be in charge, I would help you. And then when they bow down because he's the king's son, he lifts them up and kisses them. I love you. I'm here for you. Just remember that. Absalom for president. <laughs> the over-politeness is pungent. This is like the politicians carrying the babies and kissing them. It's just like, how awkward is this? We all know that that guy has never held a baby in his life. There is false flattery in every word spoken. Everything you say is right and true. No matter if you're lying, exaggerating, or simply off your rocker, Absalom always believes you, believes in you, and declares to be 100% behind your cause. Your jokes are all funny. Your decisions are all right. And even your polka-dotted pink shorts and your red checkered shirt looks marvelous together. <laughs> the over-politeness is pungent. Number three, he is quick to point out all the problems of the current leadership. Of course, when he brings up his concerns, which is all the time, he always shows a deep concern, a troubled brow, and weaves in phrases like, I'm saying this because I care for them and really want them to succeed, in order to make himself appear like a helper instead of a malcontent. This is a continuation of number three. He is constantly planning doubt in the ability of current leadership to properly lead, and he has a strange ability to see all the things that the current leadership isn't seen. And like Lucifer in the garden, he brings a false light, a distorted knowledge to those who will heed his notions. Number four, his not-so-subtle political slogan is, vote me in, I'll solve all your problems. He supplies himself as the obvious solution for correcting the problem that he himself has identified. Notice that no one else noticed the problem until he brought it up. Absalom is always pressing the fact that he would be a better leader, a better fit, and when he comes into power, he would certainly take up your case and gain justice for you personally. By the way, this is called politics, if you haven't noticed that. Number five, in his mind, Absalom's mind, his errand of justice allows him certain liberties, a.k.a. a license to sin. You know, James Bond has a license to kill. Absalom has a license to sin. Why? Because his motive is just. 
His cause is just. It's peace for Israel. Is it? Does anyone have a license to sin? As a result, he employs ungodly means to accomplish his proposed ends, i.e. gossip and slander is justified because he has otherworldly discernment, and this discernment is for the benefit of all who will listen. And his harshness and anger is justified because he is such a strong and godly leader, and that is the way a strong and godly leader must function. Have you ever had that thought? When you see someone abuse their flock and lead with strength, it's like, well, that's just a godly leader. They have to be strong. Study scripture. That's actually not how a godly leader is described. Number six, he is a rallying point for all that are selfishly seeking their own advancement. If you are interested in self-gain, who do you go to? The master of self-gain. He gets his kingdom. Who does he bring along with him? He'll bring you along. And you want gain. So as a result, he becomes the master of all those that are interested in the same end. They may not get the throne of Israel, but they'll get something out of it. So they hang on to the coattails of Absalom. He has an uncanny ability to band together those that have grievances. They are experts in collecting those of common grievance and being their commander. Do you have an Absalom standing at the gate inside your soul? I'm going to ask a few questions, and I want us to openly evaluate this in our own soul. This is one of those messages that just sort of causes you to tremble a little and say, am I heeding that voice? Am I that voice? Is that how I'm behaving? You see, you don't have to be an Absalom and swaying the hearts of a nation to be functioning in an Absalomian way. It's called the flesh. And if you're not yielding to the leadership of Jesus Christ in your soul, this is how you're behaving. Even if it be in a small, minute way. Number one, are you a walking contradiction? Are you a big talker and a small liver? Such a discrepancy should not last one more minute in your life. If you are a mere talker, you must question what your true motive is. Are you truly interested in justice and mercy and doing that which is right and the health of Israel and all that is all that matters? Or is it all a big charade? See, many of us in here know the talk. And if someone asked us a question about love, if someone asked us a question about how to handle an insult, if someone asked us a question of how we should behave in this and this circumstance, we probably know the right answer. But do we live out the right answer? It doesn't really matter if you have the right answer if you're not living it. What's the good of hearing it if you're not doing it? Jesus came to the cross to prepare a way for actual living, not talking. I'm very interested in the talking side of Christianity as well, but not absent of the living side. Because if we're talkers that don't live, we are hypocrites. And there's no greater damaging element to the church of Jesus Christ than a hypocrite. Number two, do you tell people what they want to hear or what they need to hear? Are you a flatterer or a truth bearer? I can tell you in different situations in my life I've flattered because I weighed the consequences in very quickly in my, in my soul and in my mind of what would happen if I actually spoke truth. You'll notice if you follow the life of Eric Ludy that Eric has gained a certain growl and boldness to speak more forthrightly even when it causes me great harm. That said, I still am susceptible to the same wooing of trying to be likable 
as opposed to truthful. And it's a danger in each of our souls. And I want you to weigh that. Are you willing to speak what needs to be spoken? That does not mean it needs to be harsh. It does not mean you need to yell it. It just means there are some times when you need to speak boldly to someone and say, buddy, I'm concerned about you. As opposed to, all is well in Israel. I'm sure you're doing great, praise God. You see, sometimes there is a need to speak. Here's a simple rule of thumb. If you want to speak it, you probably shouldn't. If you don't want to speak it, it's a high probability you probably should. Number three, are you honoring your parents? Are you honoring those in authority over you? Are you undermining those assigned to lead you, or are you seeking to build them stronger? I'm not saying that your parents just deserve all sorts of high praise for the way they may have raised you. But I am saying that you must honor them. It's not me talking. That's the word of God. I'm saying very clearly it doesn't matter how bad the political structure, the governmental structure in our nation is, we still show respect and honor. We are all susceptible to the same spirit within our own souls. We critique and we find faults. I stand here as a pastor in this congregation, and I have a hunch that every single person in here at one time or another has had a thought of how I could do it better, has had a thought of where I might be doing it wrong, has had a critique of my life, and it could have been accurate. However, I appeal to you to be very watchful of your soul, because it doesn't necessarily just damage me, potentially. It's dangerous for you. Because when you start to traffic in accusation and criticism, you are also trafficking a lot of other things into your soul. Those are just door openers. The enemy works very subtly. He gets you to open a door like criticism or accusation or unforgiveness, and it brings in all its friends. See, you don't know that part. You just thought you were giving a nice critique and you were being discerning. However, you need to be very watchful of your soul. I'm going to tell you right now that I am not the one to lead your soul. Jesus is. I am not without spot or blemish, but I know someone who is. My confidence does not rest in my perfection. It rests in his perfection. Your confidence should not rest in my perfection. It should rest in his perfection. I am not a fraud. I am living in the light of Scripture the best I know, but I know I'm not a finished work. And if you study me, you could analyze and find fault. I'm not a perfect father. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect leader. I'm not a perfect pastor. But if you expect me to be, that's where the problem comes in. You will easily find a grievance. But if you expect Jesus to be the perfect father, the perfect husband, the perfect pastor, the perfect shepherd, the perfect leader, you will never have a grievance because he will never forsake you. He will never disappoint you. Our confidence is not in men. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ. However, the men that turn their focus to Jesus Christ begin to bear a very real resemblance to his nature. And you can hold me accountable to the very test of Scripture, and that is that my life must bear the fruit of righteousness. I must bear it in ever-increasing measure throughout my life. And if I'm not, then I would be one of the false prophets. That test is true, and it must be held up in the church of Jesus Christ. But we must realize that we are sheep in this room and not the shepherd. 
When you're dealing with fellow sheep, you understand that they are sheep. And you don't expect the perfection of righteousness. You know that they needed the clothing of righteousness to even have hope. We're all saved the same way. So are you honoring your parents? Are you honoring those in authority over you? Are you undermining those assigned to lead you? Or are you seeking to build them stronger? When you see weakness in your authority, do you pray and seek their strengthening through humility, love, and service? Or do you whittle away their credibility through whispers, snide remarks, and ceaseless critiques? Here's a statement. I remember when Bill Clinton was struggling with his indiscretions. I was on a national radio show, and it had just come come out, the Monica Lewinsky situation. I was on national radio like the next morning or the day after. It was horrible timing. And, of course, they didn't want to talk about our book that we were on the radio show for. They wanted to talk about Monica Lewinsky. And they wanted to know my take on it as a fellow citizen and a Christian leader. I wasn't a big fan of Bill Clinton's administration. It's not like I was very supportive of it. However, he was my president. I'm on national radio. And I said, God has trained me to not honor a man based on his perfection, but based on his position. My honor of my parents, my honor of biblical authority in my own life, my honor of even our governmental authorities, whether it be local or national, what's it based on? The fact that they're in a position in my life, not based on their perfect behavior. Does that mean I have no position to appeal? I have no position to vote out? If I have a vote, believe me, I'll use it. However, you need to be very watchful of your soul because if you're nitpicking current administrations in your soul, it's very likely that you're opening up the door to nitpick smaller administrations in your life. Let's be very watchful. We can be truthful. We can be honest. When we see something, we can call it out. But we need to be very watchful of the spirit in which we do it. Number four, do you think that you are the answer to everyone's problems? You know, there are moments probably in every single one of our lives. I remember growing up, and I could catch the football. I really could. I don't know if it's still true or not, but, I mean, I could just, just grab a football anywhere. I was one of those uh, poor, slow white guys uh, that didn't have the potential to ever be professional at something. However, I had the notion that if the Denver Broncos saw me in a catch session, they would at least bring me in for a tryout. You know, and if they saw my work ethic, and they saw that even though I'm not that big of a specimen here, I think I could change the tide and we could make the Super Bowl this year. If they could just see. It was a really weird seed that the enemy was trying to plant in my life, and that I was bigger than I really was. That I had more ability to solve life's problems than I really did. Where do you put your hope? Who has the ability to solve this world's dilemmas? Is it you? Do you think that you are the answer to everyone's problems? If so, you are arch enemy number one to God's agenda. For there is only one answer to everyone's problems, and that is Jesus Christ. If you are laboring to see yourself established as the big guy, then it's high time you step down, bent your knee, and properly acknowledge that this life is not about you. How does God use a great man or a great woman? He uses them not because they're something special, even though they might have ability, they might have wit and wisdom, they might have truly uncanny talent, but that can't change the world. He uses them because they're yielded. They have humility. They have faith. They're obedient. 
He utilizes them because they're a vessel willing to host the one who can change the world. And his name is Jesus Christ. There's only one way to the Father, and it's not you. Number five, are you justifying small indiscretions? You know how many of us do this? It's like, in the global sense, I'm doing fairly well. Yeah, yeah, over there, okay, I still do that. Yeah, yeah, and I have an addiction over here. But hey, look, if someone were to analyze my life, they're not going to see that. That's hidden. It's small. It doesn't matter. In fact, I need to do this to justify getting this done. What's the classic statement in politics? The ends justify the means. In other words, it's for the greater good, people. It's for the greater good that we had to wipe out that uh, orphanage. Eh, It's for the greater good that we had to stomp on all those widows. Eh, It's for the greater good. Hmm, That's a strange philosophy. You see, the greater good is God's glory. It's obedience to truth. We obey Scripture. That's what we do. We do not justify, for instance, you don't lie to accomplish God's ends. You don't run over people to be prompt. In other words, we fulfill God's errands God's way. How did God fulfill his errand through Jesus Christ? Without sin. Hmm, what an interesting statement. How does God fulfill his errands? Without sin, without guile in his mouth. How is he going to fulfill his errands through us? Is he going to change his pattern suddenly? Say, well, I need a little sin. I mean, you can't use a human without, you know, at least having them lie and cheat and uh, be devious. Here, I mean, that's how I use them, says God. No, that's not what he says. God purifies a vessel so that he can work through that vessel his way. Do you believe believe the ends justify the means? Do you believe that a little flesh here and there is all right as long as your position of Christ, Christian influence, is maintained? The Christian life is a life without compromise. If you are overlooking small things, then it's highly likely you are setting yourself up to justify larger indiscretions. There is a sure sign that Absalom is standing at your gate. Okay, classic illustration. I've dealt in the front lines and the issues of sexuality in and amongst the church for a long time. What, 18 years? One of the most common things that happens amongst pastors, they fall into an indiscretion. It was stupid. Not wise, but instead of dealing with it properly, what do they do? They hide it. Why? Because if it comes out, it would bring shame to the name Christian. That's a reasonable statement. Everyone in here could say, oh, that's true. It would bring shame to their family. They would lose their platform of influence, which is quite significant. And they'd probably be run out of the pastoral position forever. They lose their credibility. What good is it going to do to bring that up? And as a result, what happens inside their soul? They're trafficking in darkness. And what started out as a small indiscretion has now grown larger. And now they're trying to cover up all of that. If you have a small indiscretion in your soul, deal with it. And deal with it now. I don't care if you're not a pastor. It makes no difference. Same principle. Shame and hiddenness of sin leads to a public explosion in the future. All will be known. Number six, do you find that those that surround you have a similar ability to justify their small lives and their indiscretions? Who are you hanging out with? Are you hanging out with people that pat you on the back for your indiscretions? Are you hanging out with people that say, hey, look, we all do it. Who are your friends? 
Are they encouraging you towards Christ's likeness or are they helping justify your mediocrity? Are you a rallying point for others that are hosting an Absalom at their gate? Here's our finish. No better place to finish. The cross. Now, I put a subtitle underneath this. It's called The Power of Circumcision. Circumcision is actually what is taking place on the cross. There's multi-facets and dimensions to what's taking place on the cross, so I don't want to minimize it. However, there's a circumcision that is taking place that wasn't done with hands. God Almighty, in and through the work of the cross, created a separation. It's a cutting, a covenant cutting that severed from man, woman, what is known in the Bible as the old man, what is also works under the moniker of the flesh, that part of us which is deceitful and about our own gain, that part of us which is Absalom, that part of us which is like Lucifer and seeks to establish our own throne above God, that part of us which is Saul that refuses to yield up our throne, The better man is there, David, and God has even made it clear, but you refuse and take out a spear and huck it at him. No, I will not relent. I will not give up my control. That part of you holds you hostage, and you are a servant to unrighteous. You are a servant to that which is sin. There is no escape except the good news enters in, and the good news cuts through the fog And it actually creates a separation, a circumcision, a cutting off of an old, a cutting off of a foreskin. The old man is removed from you so that you can be a new man in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know, some of you may not even know that, that the cross was not merely a forgiveness of sins. It was a dealing with the root problem of sin in our life. In other words, God hits at the very quick of our existence and gives us entrance or opportunity to actually deal with the Absalom and not be servant to it. To not say, hey, I can't do anything about Absalom. He just keeps talking at my gate. He's wooing my soul away from Jesus. He's wooing every other person in the church away from Jesus. And to me, you're not a helpless victim. You have by the means of Christ's shed blood, access into the triumph and victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. No matter what you're dealing with today, no matter how small or big, because I don't know what's going on inside of you, I want you to note that there is a solution for it. No matter how far down the trail you are, if you were Absalom standing at the gate and the hearts of all Israel have been wooed to you, You might be concocting a conspiracy and been silent for three years here at Ellerslie. I don't care how far along you are. What you need is repentance, and what you need is to turn unto the work of the cross afresh and say, Jesus, I need you to save me from this deceit. What matters to me today is not the global, the church side. What matters to me is the individual side. I want each of you to lay your souls bare before the living God and say, God, am I justifying behavior? Am I belittling your word? Am I 
placing key words like justice and mercy and the health of all Israel as a creative cover for my deceptive behavior. We don't need a charade in Christianity. We need the real thing to come back. And I would like to invite each one of you to be a part of that. I want to walk in the light, and I invite you to walk in the light. It's going to hurt. The cutting off of old isn't pleasant. But I tell you what, the new is marvelous. Let's bear the fruit of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.